Take your Bible and go to Psalm 13, Psalm 13, and the message today will be from Psalm 13, and uh, as we go there, um, just where we've been and where we're headed, um, we've uh, finished the parable series, and uh, we're, as we enter Advent season, we are preparing for the songs of Christmas, the songs that were sung at the, uh, at the birth of Christ. And so we'll be walking through those songs the next five weeks after this Sunday. And kind of a bridge between the parables and the songs of Christmas, songs of the Nativity. Uh, I want us to look at Psalm 13, and it kind of picks up with that theme of longing in our hearts um, as we think about anticipating the coming of Christ. But uh, the longing here is really in reflection of sorrow and suffering. And so this morning we're um, going to look at Psalm 13. The message is entitled, How Long, O Lord? Um, And it's from Psalm 13, so stand with me as we read God's word together. I'll be reading from the Legacy Standard Bible, and you'll notice that the key feature here is the word Lord in the English by our English translations are cap, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, but actually in the Hebrew it's Yahweh, and so God's covenant name, and so I like the Legacy Standard Bible's rendi- version of this where we get the actual covenant name of God, and so let us read, and uh, the title not on the screen, for the choir director of Psalm of David, how long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long will I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Look and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, again, we ask that you'd bless your word this morning. May you fill me with the power of the Holy Spirit. May Christ be uplifted. And may we not only see the truth as you enlighten our eyes, but you may give light to our souls that we may be comforted uh, by the truth that you have revealed and as well. Um, that those that may be away from you and need salvation, that they will come to Christ even this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. It was his second brain surgery to remove the rest of the left temporal lobe of his brain. I'm talking about our youngest son, Elias, and he has partial epilepsy. And so he was, some years back, went through uh, a few surgeries, and the first surgery had proven to be unsuccessful, so they planned to take him in again to remove the remaining tissue uh, in order to try to get him to be seizure-free. And so we were in the hospital, we were back in the back, in the prep room, time had come that he was going to be taken and escorted. Uh, to the operating room. And so as we walked through that long hallway, nervously, Christy and I followed behind the medical team as they led him to the OR. Before we got to the doors, 
he leaned his head up and he was looking through the small crowd of people and not able to see us. You could sense a little bit of fear in him. And he said, where's my dad? And then he kept saying that, where's my dad? And so I heard him, obviously, and, and so I began to make my way up, and they let me through to the side of his bed. And when I came to the side of his bed, I grabbed his hand, and I said, Elias, I'm right here. And then when he sensed my presence, he calmly laid back down. I kissed his forehead and let go of him as they took him through the doors into surgery. As I sat down in the waiting room, all I could hear in my head was that little voice saying, where is my dad? Because the reality is, I was actually asking the same question in my heart of God. Where are you? Where are you, Lord, in all of this? Why was the first surgery unsuccessful? What is going to happen? Do you care? To name just a few of the questions. And I open that this morning because really not just to draw a personal experience, but to ask you, have you ever been there? Have you ever been there where you've asked those questions? Where you've wondered, where is God? Where is my Heavenly Father in the midst of a trial or affliction or suffering? I'm sure many of you have. And if you have not been there, you will in time. And I will too. Again and again and again. And so that brings us to this psalm. Because that is exactly what is happening here in this psalm of David, written to be sung in worship by the people of God. David, in Psalm 13, is questioning, where is Yahweh? How long Yahweh, will I endure these things? He is questioning. He is despairing. And in the midst of, of some deep sorrow and overwhelming pain that he has experienced in life. And the reason this psalm is, is really so unique is because it is a lament. In, and it, it, is, it is a lament where he is expressing how he feels. He is expressing his emotions, and that's what a lament is. You could actually say lament is the voice of suffering. When you come to a lament in the psalm, really lament, is it just means it is the words of grief. It is the voice of suffering. And in the psalms, it is also an expression of worship. It's like the minor key in music. It's a little bit off, because you'd say, why would you sing this? And... It, 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 is, it is an expression of worship that is breathed out by the Holy Spirit in the Word. And, 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 and why we are drawn to psalms like this is because it is what every believer feels in the dark nights of the soul. Listen, lament is not, well, on the bright side. Lament is not, well, it's going to work out. Lament is not, the Lord has a plan. That's not what a lament is. Lamenting, or when we put words to our grief, lament is darkness without daylight. That's what lament is. It is what we feel within, even though we just keep trudging along, walking by faith. 
One author writes this, Lament invites us to grieve and trust, to struggle and believe at the same time. And again, Psalm 13 is the Word of God. It shows us that it is normal to grapple with suffering and sorrow, which Pastor Dan alluded to a moment ago. And given the fact that this would have been used to sing, it would have been a song, a psalm that was used for the worship of Yahweh in the temple, it, 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 it invites us to recognize that we don't have to come to worship together and pretend to have it all together. In other words, you don't have to dry your eyes and be tough. It's okay to feel like you are holding on by a thread and that you cannot breathe. Have you ever felt that? Because as this hymn writer writes, the sorrows like sea billows roll over you and over you and over you. And so the key truth of this psalm is that in your fears and doubts, in your anxieties and weaknesses, in the very heartbreaks and messes of life, here is the key truth. Trust in the Lord's steadfast love, even in times of deep sorrow. But here's the key. You don't get to that key truth at the beginning of the psalm. You get to that to the end. You get that to the end as you're going through the darkness, through the despair, through the tears, through the veil. And what I believe that you'll find here this morning are three things in this psalm that will be a comfort and an encouragement to you to do just this. Trust in the Lord's steadfast love, even in times of deep sorrow, and even when you don't feel like it. And so we'll consider three things that happen to us when we find ourselves in moments like this as believers. One, we question in despair. Two, we pray in faith. And three, we hope in confidence. Those are the three things that you see here in this psalm of lament by David. We question in despair. Look at verse 1 immediately. The psalm begins, How long, O Yahweh, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? And so he proceeds with four questions that are directed toward Yahweh. Now again, I want to remind you that Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It is the very name of God. It is His personal name that He's revealed to His covenant people. That He is saved and called out of the nations and saved to Himself. Yahweh, seen in most Bibles as Lord with all caps. And the question is how long? I mean, immediately, out of the gate, you feel the intensity of emotion. See, emotions aren't bad things. God has given us emotions. We shouldn't be defined by our emotions. We shouldn't, we shouldn't live in accordance to our emotions. But neither should we be afraid of our emotions because God has given them. And even in our worship, our emotions can express the truth that God has given us in His Word. Notice that he sees Yahweh as both the source of his trouble and the solution to his trouble. Did you catch that? How long, O Yahweh? He speaks to him. How long will you, will you forget me forever? Will, how long will you hide your face from me? And so he shares his trouble highlighting three emotions that he experiences. See if you've ever experienced this. One, he experiences, that is, he, he feels 
abandonment. He feels abandoned. He feels like the covenant God that has shown mercy to him in times past has forgotten him and hidden his face from him. To be forgotten is to be abandoned. For the Lord to hide his face would mean to turn from him in disfavor. So here's what David's saying. David is saying, I feel like God has removed his covenant blessing from me. Number six, 25 to 26. We've all quoted it at different times and funerals and and celebrations of life that the Lord shine his face upon you. And he feels like those blessings of, of, of his protection, of his peace, of his presence, it's gone. Other people have experienced that in Scripture. Job, Job who lost everything and was smitten with, with affliction and illness, says in Job 13, verse 24, Job says in response to his encouraging friends, being facetious, he says, why, he, 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 he cries out and he says to God, after listening to his friends, he cries out to God and says, why do you hide your face and think of me as your enemy? So like David, like Job, every believer will go through episodes where they feel like the Lord has removed his presence. This past week, we began our week traveling to Indiana to a funeral of a young man who tragically passed in a car accident just the week before. He's 16 years old. He was my, he was a good friend to my uh, two older sons. My middle son played basketball with him. And out to lunch on a Tuesday afternoon was really just going about normal things on a typical weekday. The person he was driving with lost control of the car, struck someone head on, and he died instantly. And so we traveled there, and, and as you walked into the room, and you see all these young people, because it's a young person that has passed, and you, 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 we went up and we walked forward, and just you can feel the weight of grief and sorrow. It feels like when, when people go through those kinds of trials and and, and, and difficulties and hardships, it, it, it's easy to feel, where is God? Whether you're at a funeral of a young person, or you get the doctor's report that says that the cancer is malignant, and then you're given a certain amount of time to live, or whether as you, you have received news that you're on the chopping block to lose your job, and suddenly you face unemployment, or you're a Christian living in a different part of the world and you are facing the threat of loss of life because of worshiping Christ and gathering with other believers and you face the sword of persecution. Listen, suffering and affliction, it comes in all sorts of different ways. And when you're in those moments, it is easy to feel that you have been abandoned by the Lord. 
Now, again, you know, many have come to this text and thought, how could David say this? Or maybe you're here today and you're like, well, how could Christians feel that way? Listen, I don't care how much theology you know. I don't care how many Bible verses you can quote. And I don't care how much Christianese you can speak because you listen to Caleb on a regular basis. You will have a dark night of the soul. And there will be moments where you wonder, where is God in all of this? Or maybe you say, no, not me, because you are a spiritual giant. Well, if that's you, this message may be a benefit to you somewhere down the road. Because David himself is crying out, How long, O Lord? C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Grief Observed, which is a, a, another example of just a contemporary voice that, that picks up on this theme of grief. And just like here in God's Word, David's language, it's raw, it's real, it resonates. And C.S. Lewis, in, after his wife had passed, he writes this. He says, Where is God? Well, when you're happy, so happy that you have no sense of needing him, so happy that you are tempted to feel his claims upon you as an interruption. If you remember yourself and turn to him with gratitude and praise, you'll be, or it feels, welcomed with open arms. But go to him when your need is desperate, when all other help is vain. And what do you find? A door slammed in your face and a sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside. Now, we can read that and we can say, wow, you know, a Christian, that's not true. While it may not be true, you can feel that way. He goes on to write that in his prayers, he would pray and it would feel like he was pounding on the very, he was in the basement and he was pounding on the floor just to get God to open the door so he could be in his presence. And so, the, again, the psalmist here experiences this, this, this sense of abandonment, this sense of, of not just abandonment, but alienation. You hide your face from me. But then he goes on, he experiences agony. Look at the next verse. How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? His next question shines the light within his own soul. Again, it's brutal honesty. He admits he's afraid. He has anxiety. He has inward turmoil. His thoughts run wild with sorrow. How long? All day long. Ever felt that? You just can't stop thinking about it. You just can't, again, like sea billows roll. It just keeps, like waves coming in, keeps pounding you and pounding you. And so he says, his, he, he, he having sorrow in my heart all the day. He finds himself in darkness with no light at the end of the tunnel. You, you see, folks, it's one thing to endure difficult circumstances and you get through those circumstances. It's another thing where you feel like you're stuck in agonizing darkness. And it's a darkness that is not just circumstantial. It's a darkness that, that begins to form in the heart because of the pain and the experience of grief. Matthew Henry, the Puritan, writes this. He says, the bread of sorrow is sometimes the saint's daily bread. The bread of sorrow is sometimes the saint's daily bread. Sometimes it's the only thing that you seem to be given 
over and over again. And so he experiences agony, and then he experiences attacks. Again, verse 2, notice, How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart all the day? How long will my enemy be exalted over me? His final questions has to do with what seems to be true. He feels something, and then he observes something. What he observes is not true, but he certainly feels like his enemies are the ones that are being exalted. Go to Psalm 73. Psalm 73, the psalmist writes this. He says in verse 5, in Psalm 73, verse 2, I mean, But as for me, my feet almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant. When I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. And so that psalm also begins with this sense of, well, not only is he experiencing agony, not only is he experiencing abandonment, but he's experiencing attack. The attack is indirect. It appears that his enemy ascends to prosperity while he suffers. The wicked prosper, seem to be at peace, ascend with power over the godly who suffer. And so in the life and experience of a believer, it can often feel like pain, death, evil, and the wicked are in control. But are they? No. But can it feel that way? Yes. And so David gives us that affirmation that that is the case. But as you come towards the end of this, I want to just go back to the key repetition. How long? How long? How long? What's the real struggle? The real struggle is not directed to the enemies, not directed to the heart, but the struggle within is the struggle with Yahweh's delays. His delays require us to give up our deadlines. His delays require us to give up our deadlines. We experience sorrow and suffering longer than we expected. I didn't see that coming. I didn't anticipate that. And then not only just do things happen to us, but then it seems like it happens over and over and over again. How many people do you know who became Christians and entered into the Christian life thinking that it would bring an end to their suffering and sorrow? How much of that nonsense is rolled out by prosperity preachers that are on our televisions telling us that God is, that, that, that He doesn't want evil and bad and sickness and things to happen to us? That is absolutely false. Being a Christian does not exempt us from the experience of pain, sorrow, despair, depression, suffering, loss, and death. In fact, being a Christian will only intensify those things to some degree. Paul, the, the, the uh, writer of the book of Acts says, to a suffering church, Acts 14, 22, through many afflictions, we must enter the kingdom of God. 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. You see, the gospel brings more, more things into our life. It, the gospel brings more suffering into our life. Because, because on top of what we experience naturally, being committed to Christ means the world will hate us. And the world will persecute us. And so 
we are reminded that, again, how long is the cry of the heart of the believer? And perhaps what is most important to remember, that our Savior endured the darkest night a soul could ever experience. In the garden he prayed, in the garden of Gethsemane he prayed in great agony, knowing he would soon face the wrath of God. And then from the cross, do you remember what the Savior said in his perfect humanity? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But here's the reality. Jesus didn't feel forsaken. He was forsaken for you and for me. And that is a comfort to the soul. To realize that what I feel is not real. Because Christ experienced it for me. And so that leads us, as we think about these questions, to two questions. As we apply the truth to our lives. What trials and afflictions have you experienced as a believer? Everybody has experienced something. And some people walk into church, all of us walk into church every week, carrying things that no one else knows. But the truth and the reality is, is that all of us have experiences of afflictions and sufferings. And the question is, where does David's, where does David's questions, where does he say something that you also have asked the very same thing? Aren't you encouraged to know that you are in good company? with those that have gone before you? And so, which of these questions have you asked and what trials are you going through? But notice the second thing. He doesn't end with his questions. Notice what he does. Verse 3, we pray in faith. Notice what he says after he asks these questions. Then he says, look and answer me, O Yahweh my God. Give light to my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death. Lest my enemy says I have overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. And so here's the here's what's amazing. Despite what he feels, the psalmist prays to the very one who's forgotten him. The very one he thinks has forgotten him, he prays to him. To the one who is he believes has hidden his face, he prays to the one that has hidden his face. See, that's the logic of faith. The logic of faith is, I will pray, uh, what I feel is not always going to be in line with what I know that God has revealed in His Word. Therefore, I will continue to pray. Isn't Isn't that what Job said? Though He slay me, I will hope in Him. But then after He says, though He slay me, I will hope in Him, you know what He says? Nevertheless, I'll argue my ways with Him. I'll I'll still go to him. And I will bear my soul to him, Job says. You see, that's the hope of the believer. Because the unbeliever goes through things and says, where is God? I'm done. And then turns to what? To what? Material things? To work? To money? To pleasure? What, 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 What do the wicked have that they can turn to? They have no one and they have nothing. But the believer, the believer will say, I will pray and devote myself to the fierce, untamed God who knows what I don't know and can do whatever he pleases and has an end to all things that I'm not aware of. 
I'll go to him. And notice two things in the prayer that he utters. You'll see his urgent requests, and then you see his stated reasons. Notice his request. Look and answer. I mean, aren't our, aren't our prayers so cultured, right? He doesn't say, dear Heavenly Father. No, he just, look and answer. It's personal. It's personal. Look and answer me, O Yahweh, my God. It is a practical prayer. He wants Yahweh to look. And there is mercy in a look, isn't there? There's kindness in a look. To look, to take note, is to notice, to pay attention, to understand. He's asking Yahweh to look, to notice, to give grace, to grant mercy, to give relief. In the children's classic, The Magician's Nephew, if you've read the Chronicles of Narnia by C.S. Lewis, the little boy who entered Narnia, named Diggory, suddenly finds himself face to face with the great lion, Aslan, who is the creator of Narnia. Aslan has asked Diggory and his friend Polly to join him in ridding Narnia of the evil that has entered into it. But all Diggory can think about is his sick, dying mother at home. And this lion, who he just watched create everything, and thinking to himself, this lion could heal my mom. And here's what C.S. Lewis writes. Up till then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now in his despairs, he looked up in his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own, for that a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. And Aslan speaks to him and says, My son, my son, I know grief is great. It's such a beautiful scene. And in it is a a picture of Christianity that C.S. Lewis places there. It is to remind us of the God who has bent down to us. He has bent down to us by sending His Son, Jesus, into the world. And when we look into Christ's eyes, we see tears because He has entered our sorrows. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sins. And He knows better than we do what we're going through in a world that is under a curse. And so, it's such a a reminder to us of, of God's compassion and kindness that is in Jesus. I remember sharing this connection when I taught in the, when I taught in the public school in Cincinnati, I taught Narnia, and I remember sharing this very thing, this connection, and And I was explaining, this is a picture of Jesus and how he cares and he weeps for us. And it's a picture of him entering into our sorrows. And after class was over, this young lady walked up to me and she said that she had just lost her mother tragically to cancer. And that she's a Christian and she really had never thought of the reality of how Christ cares for us in this way. Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend Lazarus. He cares because he is the God who has bent down to look into our very eyes and deal with our grief.
But, you know, when we look at it to this text, David, when he says this, we can ask this question. We can say to God, look, answer me, O Yahweh, my God. Give light to my eyes. We can say this with greater, with a, with fuller revelation than David had. We as Christians can say, look, listen, and answer, because Christ has gone to the cross, and he has made a way to our Heavenly Father. And to him we can cast our cares and burdens upon And so the first part of the request is look and answer. The second part of the request is give light. And simply put, what he means by that is help. Give help. Help me. Give me hope is what he prays. He wants the darkness to dispense and disappear. Make it all go away. Make all the sad things come untrue. And he knows that the only one who can help him and give him hope is Yahweh. Because others will not. You know, when you think about that reality, and you think about these requests, we go to God because really, as we've said, only He can truly understand. You won't experience even that from fellow believers sometimes. Look at Job's friends. They had good theology in some aspects, but they cast terrible judgment on their friend. He didn't need to listen to them. What what Job did not need is to listen to them preach to him. He just needed them to care for him. Let that be a lesson to us. Let us be empathetic to people who are suffering and in darkness. Because you know what? The reality is, is that they need to feel that compassion. And so he... Not only does he lift up these urgent requests, he states his reasons in verse 4. Look again to the text quickly. Give light to my eyes, give me hope, help me, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy says I have overcome him, and my adversaries rejoice that I am shaken. A summary of his art. What he does is he states his reasons. Not only does he ask, he says, here's why, Yahweh, this is why you should help me. This is why you must answer me. If Yahweh does not help, death will win. The enemy will overcome him. And those who oppose will mock his weak faith. And so he prays so that ultimately Yahweh will be vindicated. So that ultimately Yahweh will fulfill his promises and he will be seen as the victor and the true and living God. And so, and so with those stated reasons, it shows us what's a question. A young man texted me this past week that I once pastored, and he texted me. And he said, I, I want to ask you, what is the sense in praying when God was going to do whatever God was going to do anyway? And so I contemplated that for a while. I talked to another pastor friend of mine and processed that. And my reply was this, our prayers are part of God's plan To make changes in us as he makes changes around us. And then I I explained that more fully to him. That we pray because through prayer God changes us. And he aligns us with his will. As he also works in all circumstances circumstances around us. And so that leads us to this truth applied. This question. Do you pray this way to the Lord in times of sorrow? Do you pray boldly? Do you pray clearly? 
Do you bear your soul to the God who invites you to do so and has made the way for you to do so through Christ? There is something to learn here about our own approach to God, to, our God to, to, to Yahweh, to our covenant God. There is something to learn that we can come to Him and we can not only ask questions, but we can also bear our souls by making requests in line with who He is and what He has revealed in His Word. He gives a reason why. Do you have a reason? Why should He answer your plea? So we question, we pray, and then notice how the psalm concludes. Verse 5, we trust with assurance. Now notice how he got out of the darkness. And he didn't get himself out of the darkness. Yahweh gets him out of this darkness. Look at verse verse 5. But I have trusted in your loving kindness. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully with me. Now here's what I find interesting. The psalmist now hits the turning point. And we know it's the turning point because of the the word but. It indicates there is an alternative to his despair. He's He's making the turn. He realizes that his hope is not in the outcome of his circumstances, but his hope is in the character of God. Job learns the same thing. When he finally has his appearance before God, and he begins to, uh, he, he begins to speak, and do you remember what God's response to him? God puts his ear to him. God listens. And then when God responds, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the world? Where were you when I, when I, when I spanned out the heavens above you? And God begins to talk about his character and his sovereignty and his greatness. And what happens to Job is his answer, his, his questions turn into worship. And so, when we realize that our hope is not in the outcome of our circumstances, but in the character of Yahweh, then we have assurance. And this assurance is seen in three ways. Look at them. The first thing he says is, I trust, I have trusted in your loving kindness. That's the first thing he states. He trusts. To trust is to cling. To cling to the truth of who Yahweh is, even though all that he believes has been shaken. In other words, his, his circumstances would cause him to wonder if God really is loving. But the truth is, he is loving. And he will continue to trust. And notice that he puts his trust in his loving kindness. Some translations say steadfast love. His steadfast love. Or another way to explain loving kindness, the Hebrew word is hesed. It is, it, is to, it is loyal faithfulness. And such loyal faithfulness and steadfast love is the a direct result of grace. Hesed is love toward the unlovable and the undeserving. It is faithfulness to the unfaithful. His loving kindness, in other words, is a surprise to us. Consider Exodus chapter 34, verse 6. Then Yahweh passed in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. 
That is what is said of Yahweh after the sins of Israel and the worship of the golden calf. That he is a God of steadfast love. He has loved an an unworthy, undeserving, unfaithful sinner like me. David is starting to see the full picture. And the word loving kindness, not only is it a result of grace, it means loyalty. Loving kindness is a committed love that never abandons the beloved. In other words, what David says is, I have trusted in your loving kindness that will never abandon me. He won't abandon. He won't forsake. He won't leave. You're never going to find anyone in this realm like that. The one go- and, and here's what I want to draw your attention to, is that the one go-to characteristic of Yahweh is his steadfast love. I don't think David would deny his sovereignty. I don't think David would, des- would, would deny his supremacy. David would, no- would not deny his lordship or power. But what he does is, is that as he cries out, he looks into Yahweh's eyes and wonder of wonders, they are filled with tears because he understands our griefs and sorrows. And David is reminded, Yahweh has loved me when I was unlovable. He has loved me and has been faithful to me. And in that faithfulness, I trust in him. So, so the question that you'd ask is, though, okay, but it's easy for us to get up here and say, well, yeah, he, his, I've trusted in his loving kindness. He loves us. But here's the question. How do we really know he loves us as believers? How do we really know this? Well, look at what he says. I've trusted in your loving kindness, and my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. He doesn't rejoice in signs or superstitions, but in revealed acts of Yahweh's salvation. Christian, how do we know that God is for us and not against us? Is that just an affirmation? No, it is the message of the cross. The reason that we know that God, we, that we know that God has steadfast love for us is because He sent His eternal Son from heaven. He lived a sinless life. He died on Calvary's cross to atone for our sin, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and He has sent the Holy Spirit to every believer to comfort and guide us through the promises of His Word that He will be with us to the end of this life and into forever. So when I question his love, I look to the cross. And when I question his power, I look to the empty tomb. And I step back and I say, it doesn't matter what I'm going through, God, you have been faithful to me, you have been good to me, and you have loved me from beginning to end when I was undeserving, and that love has come to me through Christ. Now, if you're outside of Jesus Christ... You can't make that claim. Because the person who doesn't know Christ, the person who has not experienced salvation, it is not going to work out good for that person. It is going to be a life of suffering here that will unfold into an eternity in hell under the wrath of God. Only the believer can say, I rejoice in Yahweh's salvation. Doesn't Paul articulate this in Romans 8? And we know that 
that for those who love God and all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. To those people that have been called into salvation, he's not saying that to every person. He's talking to the believer. For the believer, all things will work together because you've been called by his steadfast love into salvation. Believer, how do we know it's all going to work out good? Listen to what he says. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who what? Loved us. Paul anchors the faithfulness of God in the love that he displayed through Jesus Christ in the gospel. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor power nor height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do we need to be reminded of God's sovereignty? Absolutely. But do you know what believers, what, what believers really need to be reminded in deep times of sorrow and darkness? They need to be reminded of God's love. Not just his love, like his feely kind of love, but his covenantal love that he has loved us when we were unworthy and that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that will be the hope we cling to in the dark nights of the soul. And notice what it leads to, last thing, verse 6. He sings of Yahweh's goodness. <laughs> isn't, isn't that beautiful? I mean, the, the text says that in the last verse, I will sing to, the, to Yahweh because he has dealt bountifully, abundantly. He's been good to me. So he began with questioning. He ends with singing of Yahweh's abundant goodness. The light breaks through the cloud, joy fills the heart, and worship flows from his lips as he sings of all the blessings and goodness of God. And there's not a believer in this room who could not say, yes, I have experienced God's goodness at my salvation through what has come to me through the gospel, but hasn't God been good to all of us as believers every step of the Christian journey so that when we come to the end of of our days we will be able to say we will dwell in the house of the lord forever why because he's been good to us do you have a record of god's goodness to you if you don't you should and start with the day he saved you and opened your eyes to the truth of salvation and then trace that all the way through your life where you can look back and you can see his sovereign providence over every part of your life. And if you are an unbeliever today, come to Christ for salvation. But as we look at verse 6, the crucible of suffering always will produce the crescendo of worship. Some of our greatest hymns and songs have been written by people who've endured incredible hardship and suffering. So the truth applied is this. How does rehearsing the gospel turn our deep sorrow into singing? I'll tell you how. It helps us recall God's goodness and faithfulness through Christ. So as we close, remember the story I told you in the beginning of the sermon? Elias couldn't see me, but I could see him. I was there, and just very soon before he went into that operating room, he, was, he, was, he realized 
that even though he didn't think that I was present, I was. And so for us as believers, our suffering may never make sense in this life. But here's the truth. The day will come when we will fully realize he has always been present with every believer every step of the way. He loved us enough to go to the cross and he will love us all the way home when we enter his presence forever. And we know this because Hebrews 5 says, he in the days of his flesh offered both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death and he has heard because of his reverence. He knows, he understands. And so today, let me ask you, how do you need to cry out to the Lord today? Maybe you're going through something and you just need to cry out, Lord, help me. How long, O Lord, will I endure these things? Maybe you need to pray that on behalf of other people. Maybe you're today and the prayer you need to pray is, Lord, save me from my sins and myself and give me this hope through salvation through Jesus Christ. I don't know what it might be, but whatever it is, he invites you to come to him. Let's stand and let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and for the truth of the gospel. Thank you that we can question we can pray, and then we can sing. And so as we come to this end of this sermon, help us sing with joy. With the joy of knowing your steadfast love revealed to us in Christ. And for the person who is enduring whatever it might be that they're enduring, may they cry out to you and be reminded of the hope that is theirs in Christ. And for the one who has not experienced salvation, may today, may today they receive Christ and be born again to a new and living hope. In Jesus' name, amen.